Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 40. Today we meet with Jesse Dotson, the NASA project scientist for the Kepler spacecraft's K-2 mission here at NASA Ames. We discuss the complex path to becoming a project scientist and the importance of learning from things that just don't quite work out. We also talk about her research and her work on Sophia, Kepler, and other NASA missions, and in particular, the public data policy for K2 that has led to the latest discovery announced today about the TRAPPIST-1 exoplanet system we've heard so much about. Check out the transcript page for the podcast to find a link to that story we just posted today. So here is Jesse Dotson. How did you join NASA and how did you end up in Silicon Valley? I came to NASA. I mean, I came to Silicon Valley yeah. for a job. I was, it was my, I mean, <laughs> like, to be really you're boring. You're not here. You're not here for free. <laughs> no, to be really boring. It was my, uh, I was, I came here for my second postdoc. It was to work on an instrument that was being built here for Sophia. Okay. And we've had several people on the show before talking about Sophia, big yeah. telescope on a plane yep. in the sky. In a sky, yeah. big <laughs> telescope and a 747 fly around to get above most of the water vapor, which yep. means we have access to parts of the spectrum that you don't from the ground. We can see light up there, you can't see from the ground. And it's really useful for things like studying star formation, Okay, which was where I started out in my career, it was actually studying star formation and the role of magnetic fields in star formation. Cool. Yeah, I get a kick out of Sophia because it's that in-between world of like the land-based telescopes, which have some limitations. But even the space telescopes have certain limitations and also they're very expensive and hard to get up in the sky. And Sophia has different limitations, right? It has limitations. There are some things it can do that ground can't do or that space can't do and vice versa. And vice versa. So it's, a, it's another it's, it's an, an, another tool. It's in another the niche. That's right. It's another tool. Cool. So, like, are you are you local? Did you go to school out here? So, actually, I grew up in Ohio. From there, I did my I went to Boston for my undergrad. Okay. I majored in physics at MIT, and then I did my graduate work at Uni- University of Chicago. Okay. <laughs> and I worked in a group where we built our own instrumentation, took it to the telescope, observed with it, analyzed the data, interpreted it. So it was a great education because it was end-to-end science. Okay, yeah. In a, in a fairly small group. Talk about the best kind of capstone or project or thing you can do when you're literally building an instrument for, and you know you go through school and building this whole process from yeah you know, it's everything from you know i learned everything from lefty loosey righty tidy when nice. i was assembling the instrument <laughs> to how to pull really small signals out of really noisy data and okay. understand my systematics and so that kind of end-to-end education has served me really really well and i'm guessing growing up in ohio were you always into like space and science or so I remember in second grade doing the unit that everybody does about mm-hmm. the planets. We had nine then, Yeah. right? And our teacher lined it up so that if our parents wanted to, we could go and look through an amateur's telescope. Okay. She set up a night where, you know, anybody who wanted to go. Not that many of the families went, but I remember we went. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing the rings of Saturn wow. through the telescope. And that was just so stunning. And then, you know, you grow up and you kind of forget that stuff. And yeah. I did my undergraduate in physics, and I knew I wanted to go on and be a researcher, and I wasn't quite sure what field of physics yet. Mm -hmm. I was looking at astronomy and actually plasma fusion. 
Oh, as everybody does. Of I mean, because <laughs> clearly those two are so related. Yes, and psychology I, or plasma fusion. Exactly, those are my exactly. And I chose <laughs> I chose astrophysics, and my mom. Uh, and then in between college and starting graduate school, I went back home for the for about three weeks, and my mom pulls out this assignment from second grade where I say, when I grow up, I want to be an astronomess. Because apparently I felt like there needed to be a female version yes, of, the of, course. of the name astronomer. <laughs> of course. And, uh, and I was like, really? I said that back then? She's like, mm-hmm. And I've accused her of having a whole folder file of different mm-hmm. professions I claimed I wanted to do. Okay, so. But she denies it. She says that's the only one she had. <laughs> so apparently it stuck much more than I was aware of. And so then when, you know, going to, going to MIT, going to yeah. Chicago, yeah. at what point does it land into a job at NASA? So uh, from Chicago, I took a postdoc at uh, Northwestern University. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, somebody who actually had worked, he, it was a previous graduate student of my thesis advisor, and he was building an instrument very much like the one I had worked on as a graduate student. Mm-hmm. And so it was an obvious, it was an easy job for me to get. I mean, I was probably the only person on the job market at, at that time who had done anything <laughs> like it before. Yeah. And uh, that was a fascinating experiment because it was a submillimeter polarimeter that we were building to go to the South Pole to measure the magnetic fields in the galactic center. I'm going to back up for a second because Chicago, I love the university. The winters were just so oh, yeah. hard. It was hard. It was brutal. I mean, compared to Ohio, it, even it was brutal. Yeah, um, it is. It is also the windy city. It's windy and it was gray. I think my oh, first wow. winter, I think I went two months without seeing the sun. It was brutal. <laughs> and I was always joking that, oh, well, when I graduate, I'm going to get a, a job that takes me south. And then my joke is I overshot and <laughs> took a job that took me to the South Pole. Oh, yep. He, he went full circle. <laughs> went it got warm circle. and then it got really cold. Went way too far, way too far. But anyway, so that was a fascinating project. Um, and I was getting close to the, it's, we were designing the instrument. We had that instrument. I designed the optics and the cryogenic system and um, uh, was starting to design the data analysis system. And a PI here at Ames who had gotten a grant to build a SOFIA instrument was trying to figure out who was going to design their cryogenic system, who's going to do this, that, and the other. And they were calling around, (laughs) and someone said, oh, well, Jesse's been doing that. And so I got a call out of the blue. It says, would you apply for a job? We want you to come work here. Nice. So, And especially if you're looking at the harsh winters of Chicago, the end of the South Pole, and then somebody's like, why don't you come to sunny California? It was an easy sell. Oh, yeah. And it was to do, you know, stuff right up my uh, alley, so... Oh, excellent. So when you first came on board, it was working on Sophia to yep. build this instrument. Mm-hmm. And what exactly does the instrument do? So it, this instrument actually never got all the way built. We oh, went right. through the design. Which happens. It happens. Yeah. It happens. Um, and uh, we went through the design phase. It was going to be a spectrometer to mm-hmm. actually measure so we could kind of see how much oxygen of a certain state. It, it basically, it was going to let you look at atomic lines that would help you uh, establish what the temperature was in various okay. regions, which is really important if you're trying to understand the energetics of yeah. uh, clouds, largely clouds of dust. And, and so, but what happens when, when you do all these plans and all this work on an instrument and then it doesn't get built, does that just all fold into a new project? Does the teams kind of, ha- what happens there? So uh, it depends and it's, it's uh, it ha- that kind of thing happens all the time. Of course. I mean, it happens all the time and your first time through it, you're it's a little bit heartbreaking. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we went through a review. It was one of those critical decision point reviews. We went through the review, and they said, "Yeah, you're not ready." Okay. Uh, they it was the budget was going up, 
and there wasn't room for it. And mm-hmm. they said, nope, you're not ready. And so by that point, I'd been hired by NASA. Mm-hmm. So uh, Previously, I was an uh, employee of SETI. But by that okay. point, okay. I'd been hired by NASA. And so looking around, there was another SOFIA instrument that okay. – uh, it wasn't being built here, but I knew the team and my skill set applied, and, and it was just an excellent fit. So uh, I worked here on an instrument that was being built at a University of Chicago. Oh, how nice. A nice how throwback. Nice. Exactly. So I was located here, but I'd go back there about once a month. Okay. And a lot of the stuff I was doing more was more on the analysis and on the uh, defining and designing the data products, um, all that kind of stuff. Well, talking about you know pitching and working on an idea that doesn't yeah. quite get off the ground, uh, one of my favorite examples from Ames is you know now the world-famous Kepler mission, which was pitched numerous times so it's like sometimes just having something that doesn't quite work it's not the end of the road you take something from each one of those experiences and move it on to the next one and whether it be uh you know Kepler's a great example where they would pitch it they get feedback they'd go back work on it some more Mm -hmm. pitch something that was better get feedback work on it some more i mean they went through that several times and and uh you know that's a great example from a starting a project, but to some extent, that's inherent in all science, right? Because if you're trying to do hard things, you don't know how to do it right the first time. (laughs) You're trailblazing. You have to be ready to just look at it and say, uh, so what do I do differently? Yeah. And and so that happens on the project level, but it absolutely also happens on the personal level, right? Mm -hmm. So you're on a project that doesn't work. You learn a lot from that. Mm -hmm. And uh, at least I've always tried to learn a lot from that, right? It's always like, okay, what worked, what didn't? Mm-hmm. And try to carry that on to the next thing. You know, I came here to build instruments, and now I'm, you know, working on spacecraft missions on hardware that I've never touched, which yeah. is a change. Yeah, it's like those different experiences clearly build on it. And so, at a certain point, you know, you're working on Sophia, you work yeah. on one instrument, you work on another instrument, but at a different point, then you ended up working on Kepler. So, yeah, how, how so, does that transition happen? Uh, <laughs> I, I've done so many different things. It's really fascinating. It's, yeah. it's funny. Sometimes people, actually, I had this, someone come to me about a, two months ago, said, "So." I want to have a job like you. How do I get there? And I look back at what I do. I'm like, like <laughs> uh, no clue. I mean, okay, so that instrument was canceled. And then there's not a straight path. There's not a straight path at all. And so like after the second Sophia instrument, my funding on that dried up. So then I started testing detectors that are now uh, headed for JWST. And some of them have already been mm-hmm. used in WISE. This is the large James Webb telescope. Uh-huh. And then WISE was a smaller uh, mission yeah. that has... Um, it's in its extended now, but it's launching on through its prime mission already. Um, after that, I had a couple months I was, oh no, then I worked on Sophia again as the <laughs> NASA instrument scientist. So it was kind of like the person kind of like over on the NASA side, kind of overseeing all the instruments that were being developed. Yeah. Um, so that was one of my first forays into more of the, the management side. I was going to say, because yeah. typically if you're good at making a widget, Eventually, they yeah. put you in charge of the widget makers. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. eventually, and that's just part of a career. You kind of move around, get different experiences, mm-hmm. and then eventually, like you're showing the newer people, like yep. what you're working on. When I rolled off of that Sophia job, I picked up. I I like did the initial setup for the Kepler Guest Observer Office. Yeah, talk about about that. What what exactly is a Guest Observer Office? And so how does um, that fit into the mission? I guess. So when Kepler was in its prime mission, it had you know its goal was to look for. Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. And when you say the Kepler prime mission, this is the original intent for Kepler. It's looking at a small patch of, exactly. of, of the sky trying to find exoplanets. Exactly. And even though we had this very 
focused science mission, one of the things that NASA, particularly on the astrophysics, I'm more familiar with the astrophysics side, but one of the things that NASA tends to do is, you know, if they're going to invest in this, let's make sure we have room for people who have other ideas to use this facility. Let's mm-hmm. give them some of the resources, too. And so early on, shoot, I can't remember how many. It was like, I don't know, we had 30,000 out of the 150,000 targets or something like oh, that wow. where people could propose and say, I want to look at this star or that star or this star for these other science re- reasons. Okay. Um, and we had people looking at, you know, they wanted to learn about white dwarfs. We had people looking at galaxies because they wanted to see if a supernova went off. They could catch the rise early on. And this is all in that same patch of sky. This is all in that same patch of the sky because the way Kepler works is it looks at 100 square degrees but it only has the bandwidth to download the data on a certain number of the stars. Okay, okay. And so what people were actually saying is, oh, in this patch of sky, what other sources should we look at to augment our science? Okay. And so I kind of did some of the initial uh, setup on that and, you know, worked with headquarters to kind of figure out what we needed to get a website up and to start Mm -hmm. uh, reaching out to the community about it. And uh, about... Six months before launch, Mike Haas, who's the science office director for um, Kepler, and he was in my branch, he kind of came down the hall to me and he was asking, he's like, oh, we've got all this work coming on and I'm not sure how we're going to get it done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you have any suggestions? Is there anyone in the branch that I don't know about that I should be looking at to rope in? And I didn't have any good names for him, but I kind of said, look, Mike, you're six months before launch. The center absolutely needs to see this mission succeed. Mm-hmm. Figure out what you need. Go to the management and the science directorate here yeah. and ask for what you need. Yeah. And about two days later, I got a phone call <laughs> from the branch chief saying, congratulations, Jesse, you're now working for my costs. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know that was a possibility. Yeah. But then I was on Kepler. I was, his, I was oh, wow. a deputy science office director for two years, starting about six months before launch. Uh, it was a fantastic experiment I mean, experience. Just... Um, the excitement, I mean, getting yeah. ready for a launch is both exciting and, and terrifying. Terrifying, <laughs> exactly. And because you've got a whole bunch of stuff that has to be done by a certain day. Mm-hmm. And you're working really, really hard to get that done. And of course, and in the back of your head, so it doesn't really occur to you that, you know, this isn't going to happen. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of if we get there in time, mm-hmm. if we get all, all of our stuff done in time. And about 10 days before we were supposed to launch, OCO had a launch failure. So on launch, something failed and it didn't make it into orbit. Another insight into a a mission as it's about to go, which is NASA did their anomaly review and like one of the first things they did is they went through all the things that could have failed on OCO that would have caused this type of failure and established that we had no parts in common. Because if we'd had any parts in common, they would have delayed our flight until they'd been able to establish exactly what happened. That's right. Why did it happen? Because they don't want it to happen again for you guys. That's right. You got to learn from your mistakes, just like you were saying before early on. You got to learn from your mistakes. And so that was kind of fascinating to see from the outside that this completely other part of NASA was digging into what went wrong Mm -hmm. to make sure that there was no overlap with our mission. And there wasn't, and we so, had a beautiful launch, and it went off great. And so, you know, talking about the guest observer office, thinking about, you know, you have this big space telescope, it's gathering all this information, but I understand it, like, on the ground, there's just data streaming back. There's, like, so much information, so much that it's, like, it's a bit almost, like, too much for just NASA to look at. And so by having, by opening up that data to the scientific community, to other groups, then 
you have a larger pool of people who are trying to turn that data into actual knowledge. Yes, I worked on Kepler for two years, and then I was the branch chief for astrophysics here for six Mm -hmm. years. And now I'm back working on Kepler as the K2 project scientist, where K2 is uh, essentially the experiment we're doing currently with the Kepler uh, telescope. We'll talk more about K2 in a minute, but your point about opening the data up is one of, I think, for me, and I like to think for NASA and for the astrophysics field is one of the, Mm -hmm. Kepler's taught us so many things about exoplanets, about stars, but I think it has really taught us about the importance of open data. When we first launched, and for the first couple years of the mission, we had the the data was always going to go public someday. Eventually. And and there was a timeline by which data had to go public that we'd Mm -hmm. agreed to with headquarters. But at the beginning, it was just the science team or the guest observer who had proposed a certain target had access to the data that was relevant to their Mm -hmm. uh, science question. And as the mission got more mature and it just became clear that there was so much data, um, the mission kind of slowly started making the data public more and more readily. And then Mm -hmm. to the point where as soon as we have the data uh, through the pipeline, it's out out to the public. And we've actually even gone one step further. At this point, we're starting to make our raw data public right away. And, And so just seeing the change in the field's mindset yeah. from going from a very closed data a policy. This is ours. Yeah, know. this is ours, this is only mine, to an open one has been fascinating. And just the creativity that you see when anybody can get to the data yeah, is fantastic. And like I said, we're now putting our raw data out. And this is something we've kind of just been starting to do over the past year. Let's see, I think it must have been early in March our campaign 12 raw data came down. Yeah. And TRAPPIST-1, which the is- The big announcement of all these planets. That's right, so we got the data down a couple weeks after that announcement was made. Mm-hmm. We put the raw data out right away, and 60 hours after the raw data hit the um, mm-hmm. internet, a 36-page paper with like 32 authors from seven countries. Oh, wow. Where they nailed the- period of the outer planet that had been seen. There was a planet that had been seen once in the Spitzer data, which was the first Mm -hmm. announcement. And uh, because we had a longer timeline, Mm -hmm. they could nail that period and really establish that that planet is the coldest uh, Earth-sized planet we know of right now. Yeah, it's so crazy because it's just like there's just so much data. There's so And there's all this information and knowledge hiding in that data. Mm -hmm. And you just need more people looking at it. Absolutely. So you you briefly mentioned K2. Are you basically doing the same stuff in terms of guest observer that you did on Kepler now on K2? Or does your job change as working on K2 now? So the job is is, is actually quite different. And it's, okay. it's fascinating in that at this point, every target we observe has been proposed by the external community. Oh, There's wow. no internal science team anymore. So every object we observe, someone in the scientific community across the world, not just the US, but across the world has proposed and said, we think you should look at this star for this reason. Now we we say, we're gonna look in this part of the sky, tell us what <laughs> tell to us download what there. And uh, as a result, so Kepler, prime mission, mm-hmm. looked in the same 100 square degrees for four years. Yeah, And that was absolutely the right mission to do at that time. Mm-hmm. We needed to establish that exoplanets are really, really common, which we did. And now uh, with K2, the fact that we're looking at different parts of the sky opens up 
a huge variety of things that we couldn't do with the Prime Kepler mission. Mm-hmm. Now, there are things Kepler Prime could do that we can't do. And so shorter period of time, we see shorter period planets. Okay. Planets that whose years are shorter than that ours. Are whipping around. Yeah. You know, we 90 days, we like to see things three times to believe them. I mean, you can, <laughs> yeah. you can if you see it once or twice, you can go on the ground and see if you can find it again. But generally, mm-hmm. three is easy. And so 90 days, so you see things with periods 30 days or less. Still lots of interesting science to do there. Mm. But we are looking in places that have young stars. Wow. And we're finding planets around young stars. We're looking at places that have star clusters. We're finding planets in star clusters. Um, because we're looking in the plane of our solar system, we're doing science on asteroids and trans-Neptunian objects. Oh, wow. Also, as we go in and out, and so the plane of our solar system is not in the same plane as the plane of our galaxy. So as we go around the okay. plane of our solar system, sometimes we're looking through the Milky Way, sometimes out on the Milky Way. And okay, sometimes up. <laughs> that's exactly sometimes right. Sometimes like literally through the dust. Exactly. And so later this year, we're going to do a campaign where we are looking out of the plane of our galaxy, which means mm-hmm. it's really easy to see lots of external galaxies. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because you don't have all the other stars blocking your that's view. That's right. Exactly. And so we're going to on that campaign be looking at, I think, 10 to 15,000 galaxies to look for supernovae. Hmm. Oh, wow. And the cool thing there is what we can do is we can see the very early turn on of the supernovae because Mm -hmm. we're looking at them all the time. Most supernova searches from the ground, they kind of follow the same part of the sky every day Mm -hmm. or a couple times a day. And when when something changes, they start looking at it. But by that point, you've already missed the initial turn on. And you can learn a lot about what is actually causing the supernova by seeing that initial turn on. And so that's, you know, something really cool that, you know, here's this exoplanet mission that's going to tell us something about supernovae and as a result, tell us something about cosmology and distance scales. Wow. It's like, talk about getting a lot of bang for your buck. Exactly. So, and I know, now I know also that another part of one of your many hats that you wear is also you're doing some work on like asteroid detection or? Not or, so much detection. detection. Okay. So there's, there's um, a group at Ames called the Asteroid Threat Assessment Project. Okay. And we're basically, you know, making sure we understand what the threat to the Earth is due to potential asteroid impacts. We know there have been asteroid okay. impacts in the past. Yes. There's been big ones. The dinosaurs. The dinosaurs, <laughs> right? Or there's a big crater in Arizona you can go and visit. Mm-hmm. We know that there are uh, smaller ones that have hit us and give great video, like uh, <laughs> yeah. Chelyabinsk. Exactly. Uh, in 2013, I think that was. Yeah, that pop up on YouTube on people's dash cams. <laughs> that, that, that's exactly right. And so it's just it's something that's important for NASA to understand. Yeah, totally. Um, there are uh, groups elsewhere that are doing the detection. What we're working on at Ames is just understanding uh, what what is the risk and what would it look like. And so my little piece of it is understanding the characteristics of near Earth asteroids that are important to understand if you want to kind of figure out how much damage would they cause if they hit the ground. Oh, wow. And so things like trying to understand the size, the density, what are they made of? And those are all things that have been studied from a space sciences perspective where you Mm want to understand how do these things form? How do they get here? What is their life cycle? All that stuff. But we're applying that information and that knowledge to a slightly different problem. 
Okay. And so it's it's this cool thing. I mean, I love doing this kind of thing. We're like, oh, people have done this, and now if I take this and just you know look at it slightly differently and add these additional pieces of information, I can hand that off to our folks over in the supercomputer center who do risk oh, yeah. assessment. Okay. And give them inputs that they now can put into their Monte Carlo models that then tell us, you know, what should we be worrying about? Wow. So there's so much to unpack. (laughs) And you're working on a lot of really cool stuff. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the folks that are listening who may have questions for Jesse, we are on Twitter, at NASA Ames. Um, We are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. But we could also hit you up on the at NASA Kepler. There's another another Twitter feed that that follows a lot of what Kepler and what K2 are working on. But yeah, so anybody has questions, feel free to ping us. We'll loop loop you on in. But um, if somebody was like really wanted to just dig down into some of the stuff that you're working on, I'm guessing the Exoplanet page or the Kepler page is probably the most sense. Yeah. Or? So the uh, some great resources to dig into the uh, Kepler stuff is there's a pay there's the Kepler NASA page. Mm-hmm. If you're a little more, you know, tell me about the science. T- yeah, tell me about the science. Tell me where I the really want to get in the weeds. Yeah, I really want to get in the weeds. Exactly. There's a uh, Kepler Science arc.nasa.gov. Okay. Um, which is, you know, pretty in deep. Uh, JPL Planet Quest is a great page to take a look at. Perfect. So people have more ample op- opportunities to dig into the, the data, which mm-hmm. is also being publicly released. So people can really get in the weeds if they want to. Absolutely. And a lot of our data has been used on uh, citizen science sites, too, as cool. parts of the Zooniverse. So, you know, even if someone just wants to sit down and see what a Kepler-like curve looks like <laughs> and... Um, try their own hand at looking for planets, go to the Zooniverse, and they've got a couple projects there, too. Excellent. Well, thanks for coming on over. Okay, thanks. Thanks.